Welcome to another episode of our Neon Jazz interview series. Meet jazz trombonist Reggie Watkins. From West Virginia, he has gone on to travel all over the map, giving his unique blend of jazz to the world. He has plenty of experience touring with Maynard Ferguson and gave me one of the best jazz stories we have ever heard here on Neon Jazz. He also talks about his latest album, One for Miles, One for Maynard, along with a whole lot more. Please dig it, my friends. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm wonderful, man. Oh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, hey, thank you for taking your time out. It's a pleasure. I love your music, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Oh, thanks so much. So I'm going to go ahead and start out. We're going to start in West Virginia here. How did growing up? Anyway. How did growing up in West Virginia give you an appreciation for jazz? <laughs> well, um, my mother loves music, and so she was always drawn to listen to that blew your mind that you were like all right this is it this is my moment Without a doubt. Uh, so after West Virginia, you went to Pittsburgh. You started playing there with yeah. Roger Humphreys and some other cats. What was that like to get into that kind of a scene? Well, you know, when I was coming up, the first people we were aware of in terms of other musicians to look up to were the West Virginia musicians. Okay, and so and then they passed that. Then we became aware of the Pittsburgh scene. So to go there and to be around Roger Humphreys, we lived at Roger Humphreys. And Gene Ludwig, um, you know, uh, uh, Don DePaulis, all these great players up there as jazz greats, essentially, in our eyes. So to come up and, and get to play kicks with them was was a, a dream come true in many ways, you know. Absolutely. Jimmy Ponder was always, um, do you know who that is, Jimmy Ponder? Yeah. Yeah, he was on the scene after he got back from New York, and he was like an uncle type. You know, and just was always so, uh, so warm and welcoming, and and you know, we would go to his house, and it was amazing to me to be around these musicians here. You know, 
Yeah. So coming to Pittsburgh was was the, like I said, the dream come true in many ways. All these, all these great cats around. Yeah, without a doubt. Was it, what, why did you pick the trombone? Well, you know, it's funny because I started. Um, I played. I mean, you know, I grew up. I played with instruments growing up: piano, um, like the cello for a little bit. But then I got in band. I began to play the trumpet. And after I was on trumpet, they, I was then when I played the tuba. So then I became proficient for you know for junior high or high school player on tuba. And then I entered high school. It was really me wanting to have a voice in jazz music, and that was. I said, okay, now I want to be a trombone player, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, because it called to me. It picked me, you know, the thing. Sure. You don't pick your instrument, your instrument picks you. It felt that in a way, you know? Yeah, yeah that's cool. Um, but I also have a great love for five secondary instruments, trumpet and, and piano, you know? Right on. Um, so you travel with Maynard Ferguson. That had to be a thrill for all those years. Yeah, it was great. What did he teach... Uh, what did he teach you? You know, a lot of things. He taught me a lot of things. Um, you know, for instance, yeah, you know, like Maynard had a a very. Uh, it, he was very. He didn't like to make things too serious. He was. He was. He liked to keep it light on the bandstand. Although the music was being taken seriously, the attitude was. You know, it, it, it was supposed to be fun in what we were doing. But anything, you know, he was always he was always um, able to do that and be positive and be a good influence on people. But at the same time, with but the trumpet to his lips, completely serious. You know. Yeah. Um, and and that's just one point I'm making about about how serious it is. I, I've seen him in horrible physical condition, and uh, and still play the gig. Yeah. I mean, I saw him in a wheelchair with a broken wrist, and he still played the gig. Yeah, wow. Um, and I had a lot of respect for that. You know, to see him in, in, in his seventies out on the road, um, and the road is rough, and especially if you're in your seventies. But just to see him, the dedication to it was was incredible. Uh, yeah, that's great. What do you like? What do you like best about being a musician? You can do what you love and make a living at the same time. That's not always a perfect scenario, right? But when you consider the other things that you could be doing, especially since you know musicians, we've fallen in love with the music and we're compelled to do it, and we see it as our calling. So to just have the opportunity, you know, that's why it's it's good. It, when you find yourself becoming cynical to just realize that, um, you know, <laughs> you've got it pretty good. Like Mayor used to say, we could be digging ditches right now. <laughs> we could be, you know, we could be pulling sheetrock off the back of a truck. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to remember that. Without a doubt. So, yeah, it's a blessing. I mean, especially, you know, some of the more lucrative things are not always the most creative things, but, you know, it all balances out. Without a doubt. Well said. Well said. So, you've been at it for a while, playing live gigs, playing in front of crowds. How do you look at playing live today versus the way you did in the beginning when you were playing? I think the older I've gotten, the further I've come, I just, you know, I think for all of us in jazz, just trying to be more of who we already are and let the 
kind of um, lay your stole out for everybody to look at, you know, and, and it's the ability, the, the further you come, I, I think I feel like I've been able to uh, accept that more and, and be able to just have an honest um, effort, a more honest effort. You know, it's like this lifelong journey of getting to know yourself and then continuously practicing. Absolutely. And then, uh, and then getting in front of the audience and, and letting it be its natural thing and no, you don't force it in any direction. Your latest album, One for Miles, One for Maynard, it's a, it's a great album. I've really enjoyed listening to it. And I, I want to know, what went into this? I know there's some obvious uh, homages you're paying, but talk to me a little bit about this album. Okay, so I used to be on the bus when I was I used to be with Maynard, and he would talk to me about, and us, he would talk to everybody about the experience that he had with other musicians. He was a storyteller. He's always telling stories. So he would, he would talk about, I mean, everybody from, you know, Don Rickles to you know President, I mean so many people you know um, uh, President Reagan I mean just the, the list is Frank Sinatra so on and so forth but he used to tell stories about a six month stint he had at Birdland wow. and, and that fascinated, fascinated me because they were alternating sets so they would do these 45 minute sets all, all night black set started at 5 o'clock in the morning and he alternated for six months with a Miles Davis quartet. Wow. And, and I'm such a Miles fan that that relationship, and, and he pulled through his stories in regards to his, his dealings with Miles, but that relationship and, uh, between him and Miles and, and um, the influence that they had on each other, um, meaning you know, they're two trumpet players with uh, mutual admirations, having conversations in New York at Birdland, you know. Yeah. Um, and being exposed to each other's music. So I thought that was really cool, you know. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so that that always fascinated me and I, I just wanted to I wanted to honestly represent that on a record without thinking too much about what people think. I mean I just like that I don't know if it's if it's the right thing to do it from a marketing perspective, but it really doesn't matter. For me it's like I just wanted to tie those together. That's right. That's that's great. Um, There's two different kinds of musicians, you know, almost a different instrument. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. So it sounds like you've had some wonderful teachers over the years that have taught you. And by osmosis, you have to be a teacher yourself when you gig with all of these younger guys. What do you like to teach yeah. them? What do you like to teach them about life and jazz? Absolutely. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be eighty percent. It should have your full attention. Regardless of 
Absolutely. So let me let me go ahead and kind of transition here. You you know to sit on a bus and to listen to someone like Mayor talk about someone like Miles has to be totally cool. So my question is this: Is there anybody in the world of jazz that you would have loved to have met and had discussions like that with? Wow. Yeah. I mean, um, that's, that's, it's tough to just say just one because you know. I always regret not meeting Miles Davis, you know? I, I got to meet Dizzy Gillespie, and, and that was great. To be, to, yeah, I, I think Miles Davis would probably be the one for me. What would you talk to him about? I would, I would want to let him determine what he wanted to talk about, you know? That's, I would, the reverence, I, what he wanted to talk about, you know? And that's the thing, a lot of times you learn by just hanging. That's, that's You hear a lot of musicians say the hang is important, because that's where, you know? Yeah. That's where the uh, that's where the pink tanks happen, and it might be you know sitting in somebody's kitchen as they're making chicken, you know, and just kind of observing everything about that. Yeah, and it might not have anything to do with music, you know. Who are some of your other jazz heroes? Who would you consider people that you totally look up to? Whether they're modern players or players you listen to on albums when you were younger, who do you consider jazz heroes? Absolutely. Do do you have a a good jazz story that 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 would be safe for for uh, the radio that you would like to dispense that maybe happened on the road? Just a really good jazz story. <laughs> I don't know if I do. <laughs> Slam the door in the guy's face. <laughs> <laughs> 
Frank Sinatra special in the, in the band. He's in the studio. And and he said, it, honestly, he was wondering what was going to happen because he knew he had, he thought, well, what was I doing talking with this guy's wife? And apparently then the only exchange that they ever had after that was Frank came by and his name was there on stage and says, you got a lot of balls, kid. <laughs> That's that's awesome. The the thing that's always very evident to me is that jazz musicians are very happy and fulfilled individuals that love what they do. And I always like to wonder and ask, what is it about the way you live your life that makes you happy? I think with jazz musicians, there's uh, many of them are intellectuals and they're politically aware, and at the same time. So there's different facets to jazz musicians. There's a lot of conversations you can have in jazz circles that wouldn't, wouldn't spawn in other circles. Um, but, you know, there's all those things and just the the, the, the depth of jazz musicians' personalities and combined with the fact that they're fulfilling themselves, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a sense of, of uh, we're lucky to be able to do this. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, so if you're, and it's, you know, some people are loose with the label jazz musicians, but the, the people I think of as jazz musicians, they they have an awareness of things, you know, you can have candid conversations about the racial dynamic in this country, which runs parallel to the um, evolution of the music. With, and so you can have this conversation with jazz musicians because they're connected Yeah, that's beauty, man. That's like the top level of Maslow's hierarchy, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I dig it. Um, so, Kansas City, Missouri, that's where we're out of. Have you played here? Yes. Where'd, yes, you, I have. where'd you play? Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't remember. I played there, um, I played there with Maynard, and I also played there with Jason Mraz. Um, I don't remember the venues, but then again, you know, with Maynard, a lot of times it was high schools. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, so I, I know for sure we played a couple of high schools in the Kansas City area. Right on. Well, we're we're going through an extra special uh, level of magic today after that Royals win yesterday. So it's uh, <laughs> well, congrats. Yeah, there's some electricity in the yeah. air for sure. Um, what is your future looking like? What do you have coming up? What's going on for you? I'm basically, you know, I'm back in Pittsburgh. I lived in Austin, Texas, for four years, um, and have moved back here mainly because I was drawn to. Uh, on the map and represent what we're doing 
Yeah. Um, it's a it's a it's it's a very strong scene for its size, and you've got some some great relationships here. There's people that have been playing together in a in different um, uh, ensembles for many years. You know, these you know there's bass players and drummers and piano players that have been doing it together for 25 years, and that's there's a lot to be said for that. You know. Yeah. a metaphor for jazz right now. You know, as a human being, we start out young, we gather our wisdom, we gather our, gather our experience, we grow old, and we always have this look. If you were to take jazz and go up and bump into the embodiment, physical embodiment of jazz on the street today, how, would, how healthy would it be? How would it look? How vigorous? How strong would it be? I think it would look um, incredibly healthy. I think we're on the verge of some things, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the traditionalist view is that we're not, but uh, when you when you really hear what's out there, it, it's pretty amazing. There's some different things happening, and I think um, I think I think jazz has got some great stuff ahead, uh, ahead of us. Now, you know, it's got to remain cultural. So, if there's anything that I that I think is a is um a misinterpretation of the music is when it loses its connection to the culture. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's one thing we have to watch in the dangers of um, institutional learning. You know, uh, jazz in schools can be very good, but in the, in the wrong hands, it can also be, you know, you can't, the blues is not a scale, is what I'm saying. Yeah, sure. It's interesting. I, I interviewed Jimmy Heath several weeks ago, and he was talking about Coltrane, and he was talking about how he didn't compose a lot. He was more of a player, but he said Coltrane played, you know, an ungodly amount of time a day. I mean, he was just a master yeah. of his instrument, you know, so. Um, we always heard that coming up, you know, it's like, okay, it's distorted. John Coltrane was practice and fall asleep literally with his saxophone in his mouth. Yeah. 12, 14 hours a day. That's what it takes, you know? Yeah. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Whatever talent you have, you have to then you have to tag on time spent. You have to you have to love your hours. That's right. That's totally yeah. right. Um, mm-hmm. Let me. I'm, I'm going to kind of come and funnel everything down to kind of an end here. And you've really painted some kind of Rockwellian images of being with Maynard on the tour bus. And I'm thinking, 30 years from now, you're on a tour bus with a bunch of kids. You're an older fella. How do you want the world to remember you and your impact and how your music got infused into the annals of jazz history? Well, you know, I just, I, I, I see myself as, and would like to then remember me, not necessarily the best or the most whatever, but somebody who was a servant of the music, you know, like, you, you do your best. What we, what we intend to do is our best to represent the music at the end of the day. You know, it's not, it's not about, about reinventing the wheel, although it is about, you know, pushing the envelope as much as possible. But I just want to say that, people to say that, look, he, he could play, he respected the music and the musicians, and he left us something to listen to. You know? And that's, that's pretty much that simple. That is a great answer, and that's a great way to, to, to wrap things up. Reggie, man, I love your music, your energy. It's 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 awesome, man. I really appreciate you taking some time out to talk with me today. Thank you so much. It was, it was great talking to you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players laying down all that jazz. And thanks to Reggie Watkins for his time, stories, and his honesty. If you want to hear more interviews, please go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.